I love that. He's our father, not our old man. We're supposed to put off the old man, but... And I do wish all of the fathers a very happy Father's Day. I was thinking of my own dad, and I thought about how there were times when he didn't spare me discipline and thought of Hebrews 12. We've had fathers on this earth who disciplined us from time to time. And I'm very grateful for that because he taught me a very, very strong work ethic. And he was, in fact, I rarely saw him in my early years because he was working three jobs. But I also thought of God the Father, of course, and our thoughts can't help but fly to the Father of all mercies and how he didn't spare his son and freely gave him over on behalf of us all, as Romans 8.32 says, right in the dead target center of Romans is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Father didn't spare his son, but freely gave him over. And the Son loved us so much that he gave himself over. Same verb is used because he loved us and he gave himself for us. The Father didn't spare his Son, but neither did the Father abandon him because God was in Christ. Even as Christ became sin, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses to them. And we have this ministry, we have this word, we have this message of reconciliation that we're commanded to proclaim, as Second Corinthians 5.20 says, for he who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. And we do not receive this grace in vain and to no purpose. And so it is an opportune time for us to realize that God the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the relationship between the Father and the Son is a saving relationship for the universe that he created. The very fact that the son loves the father and the father loves the son is a universally saving significance in itself. For the father loved his son and the son loved his father and he gave himself for us all. The father delivered his own son from death by resurrecting him from the dead. He was handed over for our sins, says Romans 4.25. That's the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2.2. And he was resurrected for our justification. And that's the justification of all, as we've seen. Now, I want you to see today, we're going to continue a series. I don't know how far we'll get. But off the top of my head, I had 12 points that I wanted to communicate. I might get to one of them, I might get to eight of them, but I won't keep you here too long because I know you're going to Arby's for a hero. They're pretty good, incidentally, the, uh, especially the Greek ones. Something about the Greek, I don't know, i just always reading. Second Samuel chapter 22, we're going to go to Romans, but Second Samuel, of all places, 22. 
That goes right into Romans, the epistle, and all the way through it. Second Samuel. The subject under Romans, the epistle, is the royal motif, the kingly theme. Psalm 45.1, the psalm writer said, a noble theme has gripped me. I am gripped by a noble theme, and I'm dedicating this theme to my king, and I dedicate this message to my king, the king of kings, who demonstrated his royalty by becoming a slave and becoming obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion, wherefore God has also highly exalted him and lifted him on high as the king of all kings. Second Samuel 22.50, we'll start with, and it goes through 23.2. Therefore I will praise you, Lord Yahweh, among the nations. We'll see who's doing the talking here. Therefore, please notice that word, I will praise you among the nations. I will sing about your name. He is a tower of salvation for his king. This Yahweh, this God of Israel, is a tower of salvation for his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed. That's his Christ. Christos, to David and his descendants forever. That's 50 to 51. Now, look where this goes in verse 23, or chapter 23. This is one of the most profound passages of Scripture, and it first was riveted into my soul in the 70s of the last millennium, and it still reverberates there. These are the last words of David. And he said this, this is the proclamation of David, son of Jesse, the proclamation of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob, the favorite singer of Israel, the psalmist. But notice what he says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke through me. The spirit of Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, the royal descendant of David, whose throne would be forever, spoke through David in the Psalms. David's Psalms were the Christ speaking through David. And the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Romans 1.3, is according to the flesh or hereditary descent from the line of Judah, of the seed of David, who is also the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word, the Greek lagos, was on my tongue. And this also is found in Psalm 18, very significantly, Psalm 18. You can read these on your own. But I want to show you how this royal motif, 
this royal theme runs throughout Romans very significantly, starting right in Romans 1.1, where Paul calls himself a slave of the anointed Jesus, the anointed king. And therefore, Paul, in calling himself a doulos, a slave, is calling himself an imperial slave of the king. And in the Roman Empire, he has been called to proclaim a king who is above all kings. Paul's message was not Jesus is king, but Caesar is not. Paul didn't really think about Caesar at all. He simply said, Jesus is Lord and king, period, over and out. That's, a, that's enough. That was controversial enough. Now, it's important to us to recognize RTE, Romans the Epistle, the entire main body of Romans the Epistle is enclosed by what we call an inclusio. It's inclusion, but Latin term inclusio. That means on one end of a script, one I call it a flank because I'm using a military analogy of the pincer strategy to interpret Romans. This far right flank, we'll call it, and then the far left flank, there is something that corresponds on each side of that flank. Now, an inclusio means that when something profound happens at the beginning of a script or a text or a book or an epistle, and something at the end, that theme includes the whole. It envelops the whole. It's all about, it's a theme that envelops the whole body of that script, that text, that monograph, book, epistle. And I want you to see that it's enclosed, Romans, by a royal theme, a royal inclusio. First, Romans 1.1. And this is my translation I've developed from the Greek text. Paul, an imperial slave, of Christ Jesus, effectively summoned to be an apostle. There it means emissary or herald of the king, an emissary, set apart and limited to the task of preaching the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy writings. We call those holy writings the Old Testament with an emphasis today on the Psalms. Verse 3, about his son, who is from the seed of David, according to the flesh. David, the royal line, his last words on his deathbed. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. The Holy One of Israel, the rock, spoke by me. The word was on my tongue. He was speaking for Messiah. Messiah was speaking through David in his Psalms. Therefore, when David speaks about being delivered by God because God delighted in him, he is speaking as Messiah. God delivered his son, Jesus Christ, from death and sin, his enemies, as it says in Romans 6, 7. And in delivering him, justifying life was given to all humankind, according to Romans 5.18, according to the Bible. Not according to my preference, not according to my opinion, not even according to my conviction, according to the scriptures. 
I've said before, I'm not a big fan of that bumper sticker. God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. I just skip the middle part. God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. So, kind of takes us out of the picture. Just where is boasting then? Well, it's completely gone, according to Paul, Romans 3.27. Notice how it goes on here. This is Jesus' royal hereditary heritage. Designated or declared to be the son of God. Now, that's a royal term also, because in ancient kingly rhetoric, when a king ascended to the throne, the king that was on the way out would say, I have begotten you today. You are my son. And this is what Psalm 2.7 says about Messiah and the father granting the kingdom to his son. He designated as the son of God with power according to the spirit of sanctification. There's the spirit who spoke through Jesus Christ, who also spoke through David. By resurrection from the dead, through whom we received grace, Paul says, and apostleship, grace first, apostleship second, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations, among the nations, for the sake of his name, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ, meaning you are effectively summoned to belong to Christ. That's the far left flank where the royal theme is sounded first. Let's go to the far right flank. Romans, the body of Romans epistle, the main argument we could say, ends with 1513. And from then on, Paul gives exhortations. He gives his travel plans. He wants to go to Jerusalem, then he wants to come back from Jerusalem after delivering a fantastic offering to the church at Jerusalem, the suffering saints there. He wants to come back through Rome to Spain to preach the gospel. He gives his travel plans. But the main body of the epistle is done with this paragraph starting in 157. Paul says, for this reason, receive one another, just as The Messiah, Christ, has received you for the glory of God. Verse 8, for I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision. When he came, he was a minister to Israel. He said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. But that ministry was to spill over to the Gentiles, of course. I say that Christ became a minister to the circumcision or the Jew on behalf of the truth of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. That includes Abraham. The promise that God made to Abraham was an unconditional promise and a universal promise. In your seed, and that seed is Christ, all the nations will be blessed. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. The seed of Abraham becomes the seed of David through the royal lineage, and all the nations are blessed in that seed. And Paul says that seed is Christ. So he became a minister, 
See, I'm a teacher. I can't help expanding every time I read a verse, so I'll try to shore it down here a little bit. And so, verse 9, this is the key verse I want you to consider today. And so that Gentiles, that means the nations, will glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will acknowledge you, praise you, God, among the Gentiles, among the nations, and sing psalms to your name. You know what he's quoting there? Second Samuel twenty-two fifty. Who is doing the speaking here? David? No. His greater son, the descendant, Jesus Christ, who leads a chorus of praise to the Father, and in doing so, leads all the universe and all that has breath in a chorus that praises God. Psalm 150. So, here it is in 15.9. Therefore I, Christ, will acknowledge you, Father, God the Father, among the Gentiles, all the nations, and sing psalms to your name. Who is the sweet psalmist of Israel? You say, David, I say Christ. He's the sweet psalmist. He's the singer, the lead singer. He leads all creation in a psalm of praise to his father. This happens in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, which itself is a royal discourse because as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ is the first fruits in resurrection. And then he is having defeated all his enemies and having God put all of his enemies under his feet, the Lord Jesus Christ then submits himself to the Father and presents himself with all of the creation that's redeemed from its slavery to corruption to the Father. That's followed by a psalm that he leads. And that's why Psalm 150 will teach us the last of the psalms, speaking of last words, let all that has breath Praise Yahweh. The singer, the lead singer, is the Lord Jesus Christ to his father. Nice thing to think about on Father's Day. So, and again, and again, the scripture says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. Jews and Gentiles together, the nations and the Jews rejoicing together. That's when every tongue praises him in Romans 14, 11. Every knee of all people in all of its times genuflects to him. Every tongue professes allegiance to him and says Yahweh is Yeshua. Yahweh is the God who saves in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28. All of these have royal themed words. But let's continue. And again, he says in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, all you nations, and let all the people groups, that's all peoples of all times, praise him. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. And again, 
Isaiah says, let's bring in the prophets. We brought in the Psalms. We brought in 2 Samuel 22. We brought in, as we're going to see, Psalm 18. He brings in now. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, David's father was Jesse. It's a royal line of Judah. That's why Revelation announces him. Look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when I looked, John said, I saw a lamb. And that's the point. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb of God that was slain to take away the sin of the world. The relationship of the father and the son, God the father and God the son, is universally saving in its significance. That's not my opinion. It's not even my conviction. It's the testimony of Scripture. And you say, well, give us more Scriptures. Well, let's go back to 2013 when I started giving Scriptures about this. So, notice this. The root of Jesse, the heir to David's throne, will come. That's Jesus The one who rises, that word rises is a word that means resurrection. The one who rises, and that's the righteous one in Romans 1.17. And that's the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's the one who lives by his faithfulness, by being raised and by arising from the dead. There's the inclusio, This, this one, this favored one from the Royal line of David, raised from the dead in Romans 1.4, is Christ here in Isaiah 11.10, quoted in 1 Timothy 15. To rule the nations, he rises, he's risen from the dead to rule the nations. What does he say in Romans? Paul said, look, God has done something unbelievably spectacular. His ways are past finding out. His judgments are beyond what you could imagine because they're not damning judgments They're saving judgments because he's taken all the Gentiles, all the nations. He's taken all the Jews and he's locked them up in one place called unbelief and disobedience. Romans 11, 32. So that he might have mercy on all. That's all without exception. So that he might have mercy upon all. He has mercy upon all the disobedient. How does he do this? Through the obedience of the one royal seed, Jesus Christ, who became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. It's not my opinion, not even my conviction, but it's the scripture that says through one act of righteousness, all, that means all without exception, not all kinds of, but all without exception, receive justifying life through one man's obedience, one man's obedience. There is none righteous, God said, as he surveyed all of humankind in all of its times, in all of its settings, in all of its cultures. There's none righteous, not even one. And so he sends the one righteous from heaven whose obedience secures the redemption of the non-righteous. Now, watch how this unfolds. It's going to take a while, take a few messages, not just today's. 
Notice what it says. He rises to rule the nations. In him the Gentiles, that means the nations, will hope. Then he closes the main body of the epistle by saying, May the God, may God, the source of hope, completely fill you up with joy and peace in believing. So that you may overflow with hope. And hope is the confident expectation of universal divine good in this context. Now, it's been noted then, and I've read lots of guys say this, lots of men and women scholars, that the quotation of Isaiah 11.10 in Romans 15.12 forms one half of an inclusio, and I've shown that to you today. And that inclusio envelops the whole body of Romans the epistle. So Romans the epistle is the proclamation of the royalty of Jesus Christ and of his saving significance as God's king. And this shows then that there's a royal motif throughout Romans. It's pervasive throughout Romans. I've dedicated all of the Sunday messages since the beginning of this series 62 hours ago to this one theme. What is Romans? Quidsit. What is Romans? Romans in its totality. Then Wednesday and Thursdays we gut it out in the verse by verse and the word by word to show it. So what is not readily noticeable, however, is that Romans 15.9, before we even get to 12, Paul quotes Psalm 18.49 which is also in 2 Samuel 22.50. See, my job is to hold all these things together in my mind, which is pretty a miraculous thing today because I can't even hold together a grocery list of three items in my mind. Let's see, there's milk, there's... What was that other thing? You know, But I got to hold all these things together all the time. And that's my excuse for not really being there when people are talking to me sometimes. Sorry. No, it's no excuse. This is a messianic psalm, Psalm 18. I recommend that you read it in keeping in mind David's last words. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. That's the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Messiah. So oftentimes when David is saying, I will praise him, he is speaking It's actually the Christ spirit, Christ God, the divine Christ speaking through him before his own incarnation. And so it has rightly been called Psalm 1849, a royal thanksgiving for victory. In it, the anointed king, which we know ultimately is the Messiah himself, Jesus, gives thanks for a divinely enacted deliverance which delivered him. It's a divinely enacted deliverance by which he was liberated from his violent enemies. Now, one thing the Bible does in the New Testament is it takes all those nations that were violent enemies, peoples, even principalities and powers, it takes all the violent enemies that Israel overcame in the Old Testament, and it personifies those enemies. Those enemies are brought into one focus. They are sin and death. Those are the enemies that God triumphs over. 
So God does not destroy people when he destroys his enemies. He destroys the hostility. He destroys the enmity. He reconciles his enemies. So he destroys his enemies by reconciling them through the cross. So if while we were enemies, Christ, God reconciled us through Christ's death, how much more will we be saved now by his resurrection life, which he gives to all of us? The message of grace has hardly been tapped. People talk about grace as if it's some kind of unmerited favor, and they say, oh, I don't deserve it. They have no idea what grace is and what grace has done. And what God's grace is. And and I include myself in that. It is the anointed king in Psalm 18 giving thanks to God for delivering him from his violent enemies. For it's an established truth of scripture that the spirit of Christ spoke through David. David said it on his deathbed. His last words. Those violent enemies now are none other than sin from which he was justified or liberated, as it should be translated in Romans 6, 7. The one who died, we've established this in previous messages, the one who died was justified away from sin or liberated from sin as his violent enemy. The one who died is Jesus Christ, according to Romans 8, 34. He was justified. Meaning, God delivered him from his enemies because of his own faithfulness, because of Jesus' faithfulness. And as Psalm 18 is going to show us, he says, he delivered me, he rescued me. It's Christ speaking. He, the Father, rescued me because he delighted in me. How often is that passage quoted in Psalm 18? He delivered me because he delighted in me. He delivered you because he delighted in his son. That's what it's all about. He delivered me because he delighted in his son. This is my son. A voice was heard from heaven saying, when Jesus of Nazareth came to be baptized... A voice from heaven broke through into this dimension and said, This is my son. In him, I am well pleased. We are delivered because God is pleased with his son. We are justified because God justified and liberated his son from his enemies. And one thing the king used to do when he was delivered through his sufferings, you know what he did? He gave life to all his kingdom. He gave life to all the people under his rule. Romans 5.18, through one righteous act, Jesus Christ, through his being delivered through death, through suffering into glory, justifying life is given to all. Not my opinion. Not even my conviction. Oh, it is, but that's not the point. It's the scripture. What does the scripture say? Romans 4, 3. Not what do the Baptists say? What do the Catholics say? What does the Pope say, the Cardinals, the Monsignors, or the Bishops? Not what Evangelist so-and-so says on Channel 40. Not what I say as a pastor teacher. What does the scripture say? 
The scripture says that the king, Jesus Christ, when he was justified by being liberated from his enemies, gave that justification and that life of resurrection to all of humanity. What does the scripture say? As in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. And there's no playing with that to qualify it by saying all who believe will be made alive. That is blasphemy to even consider that. Because it even says that he delivered Jesus Christ because of Christ's faithfulness. He delivers you and me because of Christ's faithfulness. Then he throws in the gift of faith so that we can have confidence that his faithfulness saved us. Now, I like Martin Luther's song that we sang this morning, of Mighty Fortress is Our God, and you might not like the idea that it was written in a beer hall as a celebratory song in Germany. Probably, I don't know about whether it was Oktoberfest or not, but I don't agree with the so-called Lutheran idea that we are justified by our human act of believing which isn't really what Luther believed at the end anyways, but he believed that we were saved by the crucified Messiah. And he, he was told by a mentor of his, you want to know about your salvation? Look to the wounds of Christ and see it there. But the whole function of a justifying through the individual's believing act still puts it on our side of the ledger and makes it sound like we're saved because of our personal choice to believe. We are not saved because of our personal choice to believe. We are saved because God saved his king through his king's own faithfulness. And in doing that, gave justifying life to all of humankind. That's what the scripture says. That's what the Bible says. And it says it from Genesis 1.1, where God created, not man. God created the heavens and the earth. God created. Created it's all an initiation of God and we are his creation his new creation. So God created us Where's boasting then I've got a testimony I believed in Jesus and therefore I'm saved I got a testimony your testimony is wrong now First, let's consider things. I'll just give you, I got 12. I'll give you one. I'm going to get you out of here so you can go get your hero. No, don't get it here. If you're buying your father lunch, don't go to Arby's. <laughs> Not today. Not today. No, you can do that if you want. I know we're all on a budget. First, the fact that the spirit of Christ spoke through David is immeasurably significant for the interpretation of Romans. And let me just give you an illustration. From the cross, Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You know what that is? Psalm 22.1. You know what that is? A Psalm of David. You know why Jesus cried that out? Not because the father abandoned him. But because above his head, Pilate did something very strange under the providential direction of God. Pilate, who ordered his crucifixion, who would be saved by that same act of crucifixion, 
ordered that a placard be put over Jesus' head, a commemorative plaque, so to speak. I call it Pilate's plaque. I mentioned it last week. And the plaque said in three different languages, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, so the whole world could read it at that time. Now it's in English in our Bibles. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Pilate had said to the people who crucified him, his own people, you want me to crucify your king? Is that what you're saying? And what did the people led by their religious leadership, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. And it put Pilate in the position of having to order his crucifixion. First his scourging. But he put that plaque up there and they said, you can't put that up there. Don't you understand? That's going to stir the whole pot of controversy all over again. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Jesus had over his head nailed to the same cross to which he was nailed the proper declaration that he was, in fact, the king of the Jews. And being the king of the Jews, king of Israel, and God was going to save all of Israel. That's what the scripture says. God will save all of Israel, even those that crucified him, especially those who crucified him. That's his mercy. Every eye will see him. Doesn't it say that in Romans Doesn't it say that rather in Revelation that every eye will see him? Even those that pierced him? And does not it also say in Philippians 2 that every knee will genuflect? Not out of a forced genuflection, but out of praise and worship for his mercy and grace. That every tongue, that's every tongue of every human In every human head of every human being that's ever lived in all of humanity's times when the coming of Christ occurs will sing praise to me, says the Lord, as Paul interprets it properly in Romans 14, 11, and 12. It's not my opinion. It's my conviction, but that doesn't matter. It's what the scripture says. And so when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it because the father had abandoned him? No, because Jesus had already said, and I hope you got this point from hitting it several times in Romans, or in John rather, 828. When you have lifted me up, speaking of his crucifixion, then you will know that I am. Meaning I am Yahweh, the God who saves, that I am. And then he says this, speaking as if from the cross, in 829, he says, my father has not left me alone. My father has not abandoned me. As if to say, when I'm on the cross, I'm going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But I want you to know the father has not abandoned me in that moment. Why? Paul understood it. Did he not? When he said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the very moment when the one who knew no sin was becoming sin. We are saved by the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's a triune salvation. 
So what was Jesus doing by citing that, by quoting that? He was saying, that placard above my head is true. I am the royal descendant of David. And what David cried out in his misunderstanding and in his anxiety and in his panic and in his terrible pressure and in his terrible oppression by enemies is why have you abandoned me? I am identifying with and screaming out with a screaming out creation. I am the royal seed of David. And that sign above my head written by by Pilate, was authorized by my father. This saying means I'm identifying with the royal descendant of David. I am he. I am him. When you've lifted me up, you'll know. And if you read all the way through that psalm, you might find that in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, the same writer says, All the nations of the earth will come and worship before him. Who? The one whom God did not spare. It's true. He didn't spare him. I'm not taking away one iota from the depth of the suffering of Messiah. I'm just saying he did it with his father, not without him. I have this assurance that everything that I must suffer as a communicator of the word I don't suffer it alone. My father is with me. He who sent me is with me. He never has left me. He never has left me. Not even in my moments of failure. Not in my sinful moments of doubt. In my sinful moments where I could not demonstrate the fidelity of my savior and did not participate in it. And functioned in the old man. My father hasn't left me alone. The Father has not left Jesus alone, even when Jesus prayed, why have you abandoned me? Even while he was being made sin, the Father didn't leave him alone. So what makes you think he leaves you alone in your sinfulness? If it ever happens, of course, I don't assume that it ever has. Maybe you're not like me. I'm a sinful man. But you know what? He delivered me. He will deliver me. He is delivering me because he delights in his son for me. And now he delights that I'm his son. I call him my father. And I have almost every time I speak to him, I say, Father, I just want you to know something that you already know. I'm yours completely. And if I don't dedicate myself wholly and completely to the Father before I step in this pulpit, I pray that he reminds me whose I am. Not who I am. Whose I am. Don't you know all things are yours, whether it's death or life, Paul or Peter, the whole Bible, things to come, things that you'll face in the future, things that are present, presently seeming to threaten you. They're all yours. And didn't you know this? 
you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And guess what? Your life is hid with Christ in God. Why? Because you died. When did you die? Second Corinthians 514 tells me when I died. If one died for all, and he did, then all died. When? Then. Now, the one who died in Romans 6, 7 is the one whom God justified, meaning liberated from, apo, away from sin, his enemy, his violent enemy. It's not David being rescued from the Philistines. It's Jesus Christ being liberated from his enemy sin and from the enemy death through resurrection. He's the one who died. And if the one who died, died, and all died when he died, what do you think happened when God justified him away from sin? I'm not even going to answer that. I'll let you think about it. If one died for all and all died, what happened when the one who died was justified by his resurrection from the dead? Let me just give you a hint. When the Bible says you were raised together with him. That says to me, I was justified together with him. Which means I must have been justified by something he did. I must have been justified by his faithfulness and not mine. And that, you know what that is? What I just told you is my faith, which now believes that I've been justified, not by my faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He delivered me with eternal salvation. He delivered you with eternal salvation because he delighted in his son. So I'm not going to get through point one out of the 12 points today. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. When I'm lifted up, you'll know that I am. That I am who? Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh who saves. You're going to know. If you want to know God, you can't know him through looking at the stars and the magnitude of the galaxies. You can't know him by looking at the microcosmic world of nucleus, electron, Neutron, atom and subatomic particles. Oh, you might wonder it. Who would have created all that? But if you're going to know God, you're going to see him in a crucified man on a Calvary's cross with a crown of thorns and a sign over his head, nailed to the tree with him. King. This is Jesus the Nazarene. King of the Jews. And when he introduced himself to the author of Romans, Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the Christians, what did he say? Well, today we would say he said this, hi. It's a polite thing to do when you introduce yourself to the neighbor. People don't do that anymore. They say, hi, grunt, go by. Hi, my name is Rick Knapp which I don't like to say sometimes because people say, wait a minute, let me run through my, oh, you're him. So I should use my other name. I'm Alan. Maybe that'll work. What do you do for a living? Oh, here we go again. So my answer, I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me. 
Um, but Jesus said, hi, I'm Jesus the Nazarene, you know, the one you're persecuting. Paul could have said, well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting those people who say they're connected to you. Jesus is saying they sure are connected to me because you persecute them, you're persecuting me. I'm the one whom God delighted in and delivered. They're the ones delivered because God delighted in me. Furthermore, Saul, you enemy you, you too are delivered because God the Father was delighted in me. So he takes this guy above all the people on earth Saul of Tarsus is the guy back then you would have said, oh, he couldn't have saved everybody. What about Saul of Tarsus? <laughs> what about him? Especially him. God had mercy on me, Paul said. Why are you saved? And why do you think someone else shouldn't be? Is there something in you that's deserving that's not in them? Or are you more in awe of another person's evil transgressions and more in awe of their transgressions than you are of Christ's payment for them? Human arrogance everywhere today. Idolatry hidden, but almost everywhere. The biggest idol in American history is a false gospel that people believe. That somehow their merit sneaks in somewhere, if not by works, by the act of human believing. Idolatry. So in closing, if you look at Paul, this is the next principle, and I will close with this. Every time Paul quotes a little section of scripture, whether it's a verse, a phrase, sometimes even a word that would catch the attention of the audience, like slavery in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. goes all the way through Romans 6. Whenever he does, you can be sure that when you go check that verse, he's dealing with the context of it too. He wants you to read what leads up to it and maybe what's after it. In other words, Paul might quote a little phrase like he does here, a verse, but he wants you to see where, the, where it came from. So when he quotes Psalm 1849, which is the same as 2 Samuel 2250. And he says, therefore, I will praise you in all the nations. Therefore, I will praise you among the nations. Lead the nations in praise to you. Why therefore? Is what I ask. Why does he say therefore? And the reason for that is if you back up just a little bit in Psalm 18... He gives the reason for that. Because God delivered him. God delivered the royal king from his violent enemies and set him on high. That's Jesus Christ speaking in advance through David and showing that David's oppressors and David's deliverance from God, by God, was a picture of the deliverance of the royal descendant of David by God. That's why Romans 3.26 doesn't say God is the one who justifies them that are of the faithfulness of Jesus, but the one, 
It doesn't say them in Romans 3.26. It doesn't say he justifies those who are of the faithfulness of Jesus. He said he justified the one, Jesus, by Jesus' own faithfulness. And justifying the one who died for all, he justified all. It's done. It's finished, I think, is in the Bible. I think we named the church that. So look what he says back further in, in Psalm 18. He brought me out to a wide open place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's Messiah speaking through David. On his deathbed, he told us this. The Messiah says, he brought me out. What? Out of the tomb to a wide place. What's the wide place? The universe over which he rules as a redeemer. He rescued me from what? From sin, Romans 6, 7, having become sin, from death, which is the last enemy put under my feet, he says, because he delighted in me. Do your, here's your testimony, and it must be. He delivered me because he delighted in Christ. He saved and rescued and justified me Because he delighted in his son, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It isn't Jesus over here and Jesus is my friend and Jesus is my buddy and he's next to me. And he gives me good things and good presents. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't have this car. No. Jesus is the reality of who God is in his totality. Jesus is the reality of who all mankind is and who all creation is in all of its redeemed totality. Jesus is all there is. Jesus is the reality of all that is. So, verse 20, Psalm 18. The Lord, Yahweh, the Father, rewarded me. Jesus is speaking. The Father rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to my righteousness. And then he says in verse 25, with the faithful, speaking to his Father, you prove yourself faithful. The gospel of God is all about his Son, and in it is revealed the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God from faithfulness to faithfulness. Not faith to faith, faithfulness to faithfulness. The gospel is the story of God's faithfulness, Romans 1.17, rewarding the faithfulness of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and therefore rewarding, if we can use that word as something reckoned by grace in Romans 4.4, the whole human race with righteousness, rewarding them because of Christ's faithfulness. The gospel then is preached Not so that people will believe and be saved, but so that people will hear that they're saved and wake up to it. Wake up 
and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, you're sleeping. Wake up, you're dead. Wake up, you're fighting over politics because you're spiritually dead. You're carnal. You're you're dead while you're living. You're walking around and making petty issues that the Bible never makes any issue about an issue. You've turned it into irrational hatred and maligning and slander and bitterness and vulgarity and vituperation and envy and all the stuff that happens when an idolatrous gospel has been allowed to start right in the 1700s and lead to this present time. It's time that the real gospel is preached and that the sleepers awake. And that includes a lot of people that go to churches All right, now then, let's close. Got halfway through part one of 12. Father, what can we say? The word thank you fails, just fails to do it. So what's reasonable, I guess, is just to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you because... Thank you is not enough. So it seems rational is give our total beings to you and present them to you. It just seems rational. Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, fellow born ones of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's your reasonable way of saying thank you. Let's not be the nine lepers who get this wonderful salvation and walk away. Let's be the one that comes back and says, thank you by presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Father, I, in the presence of this congregation, as your one that you've called to preach the gospel among many, among many here, you've set me apart to this purpose. I have not always been totally set apart to it and have been distracted by many things. But in the presence of this wonderful congregation, I present myself to you, Father, making myself afresh, available to you, at your service, at your disposal, And I do this in Jesus' name. And I do this.